the way to chapter 6, verse 11. 1 Timothy chapter 5, we'll be reading from verse 23 all the way to chapter 6, verse 11. If you are using one of the Bibles provided in the chair in front of you, you may find this passage on page number 10,000, I'm sorry, 1030, 1030, 1030. We are in Sermon 14, coming close to the end of our series in the book of 1 Timothy, a series entitled, God's House, God's Rules. Let's listen to the word of the Lord for our hearts this morning and for his church in this very moment. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. The sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. All who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they are brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have clothing and food, we will be content with that. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and to many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, men of God, flee from all this. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, through your Holy Spirit, teach us the things we need to flee from. And remind us of the things we need to flee to. Father, I confess 
that I am not able to preach this message in a way that your work will be done in people's hearts unless your spirit does the job. We ask you, Holy Spirit, to speak to our hearts, to convict, to encourage, to correct, for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ in our midst. Amen. Some of you may be anxiously awaiting to see what exactly will this preacher say about the first verse of the text we read. Some of you I saw looking to your next, the person next to you, like, wow. I was sharing earlier prior to the service to one of our members of the fact that I will be starting the message this morning with this command to drink a little wine. And uh, one of them who heard me say that said, well, you're going to preach the choir this morning. If you didn't get it, that's okay. (laughs) If this is your greatest curiosity this morning, I may disappoint you in saying that this will not be the weightiest issue of today's sermon. Actually, it was not even close to being a punchline in Paul's intentions for these verses. Our focus today will be on three points. Traveling sins. Yes, sins do travel. Extended honor and harmful desires. Traveling sins, extended honor, and harmful harmful desires. The command to drink a little wine is given in the context of Paul giving instructions to Timothy on who to lay hands and on the command of practicing discernment prior to the laying on of hands. And one reason for such discernment was so that Timothy would not share in the sins of others. That's what we're told in verse 22. And then at the end of verse 22, Paul instructed Timothy... To keep himself pure. That's how verse 22 ends. Now from verse 23, it is implied that Timothy was so determined to pursue this purity that he committed himself to drink only water. Now some commentators also suppose that Timothy may have been influenced by the Uh, Nazarite vow, which was also applied to John the Baptist in Luke chapter 1. If you're not familiar with the Nazarite vow, in Luke chapter 1, the Holy Spirit commanded Zechariah that John should never take wine or other fermented drinks. Now, we cannot know for sure if this was Timothy's motivation. Paul is not criticizing the practice of total abstinence nor does he demand it from everyone. Yet in Timothy's case, Paul has a command, and it appears to be opposite of what Timothy was committed himself to do. Paul commands Timothy to use some wine for medical purposes. Total abstinence has been upheld in many churches. There are some in this room that out of personal conviction hold to a total abstinence view. 
we don't want you to act against your convictions. However, each of us should make sure that our convictions are informed by Scripture. Even though there were people in the Bible who received commands from God not even to touch wine, such as Samson in the Old Testament, John the Baptist in the New Testament, there are other indications that such abstinence was not required by all. Jesus' very first miracle in the Gospel of John was a miracle of turning water into wine. Now, if Paul's intent was to make an argument for total abstinence, he could have easily done it. But he did not. He argued instead for absolute moderation and absolute control and doing it with a desire not to be a stumbling block. That's his teaching throughout his epistles. Now, for those of you who do have a personal conviction of total abstinence, please do not... Let me, let me rephrase. For those of you who do not have a personal conviction of total abstinence, please do not laugh or belittle the convictions of those who have it. I often hear even preachers laugh and make a mock of those who do have a personal conviction of total abstinence. Please do not engage in such divisive response. At the same time, those of you who do hold to a total abstinence view, do not expect others to hold similar convictions, and do not suspect them of less godliness than you. If you don't have a conviction formed on this topic this morning, I encourage you to examine the scriptures first before you make up your mind. Don't form a conviction based only on what is convenient to you or based only on tradition. Let scripture inform your convictions. In this text, verse 23 is a very incidental point, a very personal note to Timothy as Paul talked about purity in the context of laying hands on others. Purity in Timothy's case did not mean total abstinence from wine. Yet pursuing purity and pursuing discernment in laying of hands was motivated by the following principle given in verse 24. And this is a bigger issue in this context. Look at verse 24. The sins of some men are obvious reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. What a powerful picture of sins traveling. Imagine in your RV with a hitch behind you, and it's not your car. It's your sins. But that's not really the picture that Paul gives us. Paul is saying that, the pic- that, that most sins are so evident that they travel ahead of us. to The seat of judgment. What is this picture about? 
It is a great picture in which Paul tells us that some sins are so evident, they will be so public, and one can make an early judgment about sins, and thus should not ordain certain people to pastoral positions. And yet other sins will hide themselves so well that they will not be evident at first, but they will follow. Now, a similar picture is given for doing good deeds. Most good deeds are visible. They're evident. Yet when considering pastoral candidates who might lack evidence of good works, great care and patience should be exercised and allow for time for such acts to come to surface. Now, even though these principles are given um, in the context of examining potential candidates, they are a great reminder for all of us of how sins and good deeds travel. Some travel faster than others, but they will all surface sooner or later. In the case of sins, this should encourage us to fight them off, even when no one sees us sinning. Actually, friends, the most dangerous sins are not those that travel fast, but are not those sins that become evident. They are not the most dangerous sins. The most dangerous sins are those that remain hidden. Friends, this is so counterintuitive, but the sins that are not evident to us or to others are more dangerous to our souls than those sins that are evident to us and to others. Those that surface up and become public, we can deal with them. We have other brothers and sisters to encourage us, to help us spot them out, because they're evident. But it's the sins that do not surface up. They're not that evident. They travel slow. They come behind us. To the judgment seat. Paul's concern is not so much with sins that travel faster, but with those that travel slower. It is those sins that come behind us that may cause some of us the greatest surprise on the day of judgment. In the case of good deeds, we should persevere in doing them, not only those that are evident, but those that no one sees, knowing that none of them can remain hidden. Why? Because God is watching. Traveling sins. Traveling deeds. What are you more afraid of? Those that people know about? Most people are afraid of sins that are traveling faster. Most people are afraid that their sins might be evident now. Friends, I want to encourage us. We need to develop a greater fear for those things that are not evident because they do more damage than those that are evident. But just ask God to help us see that perspective. And that's why Paul tells Timothy to be careful on whom he lays hands. So point one, 
traveling sins and traveling deeds. Point two, extended honor. Earlier, Paul encouraged us to honor widows and then to honor elders. Now, today, he's encouraging slaves to honor their masters. Now, let me, let me clarify here a few things. In no way is the Bible encouraging slavery. Unfortunately, slavery has been, from ancient days, even till very recently, a part of human society. Yet, even when God's people endured it, it was always a symbol of sinfulness. We must also be careful of understanding the differences between slavery in this country 150 years ago and the nature of slavery in the Greco-Roman world. Unlike the racially determined slavery of recent times, in the Greco-Roman world, slaves had a different role in society than they have today, that they've had recently. Uh, let me read to you a list of occupations that slaves had in the Greco-Roman world. It's a long list. Cloth, cloth makers. So that means those who make fashion. Menders, wet nurses, child nurses, clerks, secretaries, ladies' maids, hairdressers, hair cutters, uh, mirror holders, masseurs, readers, entertainers, midwives, and infirmary attendants, artisans, potters, sculptors, and painters, doctors, teachers, cooks, and managers, actresses, miners, uh, farmers, property managers, shipping managers. This tells us that in some way what Paul is addressing here is not simply slavery, but the relationship between people in the working class in those days. So in some way, I think it's appropriate for us to talk about these principles applied today in the relationship between an employee and his employer. Again, if Paul gives counsel to slaves, it's not because he favors slavery. He's simply saying that even in such difficult relationships, one can live as a Christian and bring glory to God. And this is the evangelistic purpose, which comes very clear in verse 1. Look in verse 1. Chapter 6, all who are under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teaching may not be slandered. What is at stake even in the slave-master relationship was God's name and the apostolic teaching. And yes, the same principle is at work today in the employer-employee relationship. Friend, I wonder... I wonder how many of us think this about our relationship with our employers. Your work is not just about your work. It's about the reputation of God's name and the apostolic teaching that you claim to follow. Does the way you work reflect well on God? Does the way you work reflect well on God? Even if your work is in no way related to spiritual things, does your work reflect your spiritual convictions? If in verse 1, Paul seems to have addressed the respect due to a master who is not a believer, in verse 2, uh, he addresses a problem that arose between Christian masters and slaves. 
Some of those new converts to Christianity assume that now that they are Christians, they can loosen up on their commitments to their masters. Look at verse 2. Those who have believing masters are not to show less respect for them because they're brothers. Instead, they are to serve them even better because those who benefit from their service are believers and dear to them. Again, if, if we can take the principle in this verse and apply it to the employee-employer relationship, uh, it would mean the following. A similar temptation faces every employee who thinks he or she can get by with some misperformance simply because his boss is another brother in Christ. Have you ever been tempted to think this way? Oh, my boss is a Christian. He'll understand. Wrong. Wrong thinking. Such expectations are completely out of place. Why would the boss differentiate and play favoritisms between his employees based on religious commonalities? In other words, using religion to gain personal favors with a Christian boss in the workplace is not acceptable. God's name might be defamed and the Christian teaching slandered because the boss, you're expecting the boss to show favoritisms to you. This Paul encourages the slaves to honor their masters by working diligently for them, whether they are Christians or not. So Paul concludes this section about honoring masters by repeating once again a phrase that we saw elsewhere. These are the things you are to teach and urge on them. Yes, honor is to be extended not only to widows, as we saw two weeks ago, not only to elders, as we saw last week, but honor is to be extended even outside the church to the people whom we serve in our workplace. It is a God-given command for the sake of bringing honor to God's name. Traveling sins, extending honor, thirdly, and most longer today, harmful desires. Harmful desires. Starting with verse 3, Paul turns back to the crucial nature of his teaching and the danger of pursuing a different teaching than the one he has been giving. Look at verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree with the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. Notice how Paul describes those who refuse Paul's teaching and the teaching of Christ. He describes them as conceited. Another word for that is puffed up or proud. Those who reject the truth do so because they think they know better. Oh, I know that's what you say, but I know better than you. They think they know better. They're overly confident in their ability to know the truth. The irony is that in actuality, Paul says, they understand nothing. In the very thing they boast about, they are utterly empty. And friends, this is a nature of a puffed-up mind. Puffed-up mind. Overconfident in its abilities, but utterly empty in its true knowledge. That's why one other meaning of the Greek word for puffed-up is also the, the, the meaning blind or blinded. 
to be puffed up in one's mind leads us to mental blindness. More so, such people forget that God himself stands against the proud and gives grace to the humble. People with puffed up minds cause two devastating side effects. People with puffed up minds cause two devastating side effects. The first side effect is on the community in which they belong. The second side effect is on them themselves. Look at, the, look at verse 4 for the side effect that such person has on a community. A puffed up person or a conceited person has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of, and of corrupt mind. In other words, someone with a puffed up mind loves to stir up controversies and quarrels. Well, the NIV here translates this picture very mildly. He says, um, it says, he has an unhealthy interest in such controversies. Uh, but this is a very mild translation. A more wooden translation is, this person is sick. This person has a morbid craving. Such controversies easily end up causing envy, strife. When people start taking sides, it causes malicious talk, evil suspicions, constant friction. Does that sound familiar? Unfortunately, every church experiences some shades of this reality at some point in their history. You know why? Because none of us are protected from falling into a puffed-up mind that causes these kinds of side effects on the community. The second devastating side effect is that such a person with a puffed-up mind causes some significant devastating side effects on himself. Look at verse 5 who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godless is a means to financial gain. In other words, such people, even though they may engage in such controversies for the sake of finding the truth, they end up being robbed of the truth. Worse, such people start considering that which was an end in itself, namely godliness, and now turn it into a means for a different end, namely material gain. And this was a crucial characteristic of the false teachers in Ephesus. But friends, this false teaching is going on even today. There are people who very subtly and shrewdly have started talking about godliness as a means to living wealthier and healthier and happier. There are pastors who preach such false promises like be faithful in your giving and God will reward you financially. Or, they say, if you have faith enough, God will heal you. Or they say, declare to yourself that everything that, is, that you touch will prosper. According to this false gospel, if believers repeat positive confessions... If they focus on positive thoughts, 
if they generate enough faith, God will release blessings upon their lives. Such preachers encourage believers to name it and claim it. This is the prosperity gospel of promising health and wealth. And it is a false gospel. It is a gospel that advances by promoting godliness as a means for material gain. Such prosperity preachers tend to portray Jesus as a solution to our material wants. And friends, some of you are watching these preachers on TV. I know it because some of you have told me. Let me give you some examples. And I will not be afraid of calling out some names. I think you need to know what some of these names are. And I'll give you an example from one book. Joel Osteen. In the book, It's Your Time, he writes, and I'm quoting here, When you are in difficult times, it's good to remind God what you've done. Quote, God, I kept my family in church. God, I've gone the extra mile to help others. I've given. I've served. I've been faithful. And he continues. In your own time of need, you should call in all those seeds you've sown. In other words, Osteen and others like Joyce Myers, T.D. Jakes, often promote a give-to-get mentality. You give to God, or you live obediently, you live godly, and God could pour more blessings on you. And you can take that to the bank because God promised so. Within this prosperity gospel, the goal of giving is ultimately to serve yourself. The goal of godliness is primarily the material or physical gain that you get from it. Friends, if you want to read more about this false gospel and some modern-day proponents, I strongly encourage you to get a copy of the book entitled Health, Wealth, and Happiness. Has the prosperity gospel overshadowed the gospel of Christ? We ordered a few copies for our church. They'll get here next week. They'll be on the slat walls. But again, the rhetoric of so many TV preachers is that Jesus died for your sins so that you can be prosperous and healthy. And this is false. And Paul would have none of it. Actually, Paul links godliness with contentment. Look at verse 6 through 10. Paul takes us on a great detour about how we should view riches and money in the context of pursuing godliness. The principle in verse 6 is this. But godliness with contentment is great gain. Friends, this is the opposite of what false teachers who taught that godliness will bring materials blessings 
This is, a far, this is opposite. Paul is preaching something opposite of what you hear on TV by some of these popular mega preachers. This past week, I was almost brought to tears reading an update from a mother of six young children. She had been fighting off brain cancer. We've been praying for her in our Wednesday night services. Her name is Dana. She's out of Cleveland. She's Sebastian's sister-in-law. Sebastian preached for us a few weeks ago. She's now in stage four. And one of the family members wrote the following report about how the children are doing. These children are thanking God that their mother has only brain problem and not a heart problem. Yes, we pray believing that God is able to do miracles. But in the end, he decides if he will be glorified through her life or through her death. And to preach a gospel that bolsters us to expect only wealth, health, and happiness is to preach a false gospel. Contentment is an issue of the heart that has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Contentment is not about having money or not having money. Contentment is not about naming it and claiming it. Godly contentment is caused when we realize that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Godly biblical contentment is when we realize that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We can only pursue godliness with contempt, contentment when we are convinced that godliness by itself is our greatest gain. But so often, we too think of godliness plus something else. Plus health, plus financial security, plus a great family, plus a spouse, plus, plus, plus. Friend, I wonder, what is it in your own equation that you put after the plus sign? Godliness with contentment is a great gain. And then Paul in verse 7, 8, and 9, he gives us a few reasons. Verse 7, for we brought nothing into the world. And we can take nothing out of it. In other words, to help cultivate contentment in our hearts, remember how you came into the world and how you will leave it with nothing on both ends. Here lies the futility and deception of greed. It makes you accumulate things which you cannot take over the border of death. We know these days what it means not to be able to take even a, a cup of, or, a, or a bottle of water through the TSA security checkpoint. One of our beloved deacons here tried one time to take through some bullets, and that did not go very well. If that's how TSA works, the security point check of our death is way more radical. We can take nothing with us. You have to leave it behind. So why would you let your heart constantly seek things which you cannot take with you? 
Contentment is not laziness or excusing a hard work ethic. Contentment is an attitude of the heart that is satisfied in what God has already given us. And then look at verse 8, or picture of biblical content. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. What? Honestly? Can you say these words out loud in good conscience and not be a hypocrite? The reason why most people are not content is simply because such simplicity of life is unacceptable. The American dream has so infected our minds that having only the necessities of food and clothing would put us under the embarrassing poverty line. And that just cannot be acceptable. So the world will teach us. But for Paul, there should be nothing embarrassing about, about having simply food and clothing. Quite the opposite. It should be enough for a content heart. Friends, can you imagine some of the TV preachers who make all kinds of false promises speak this verse? When they tell you that you should expect God's richest blessings materially here, health and, and, and harvesting, a harvest of blessing, and then to them to go on and say, if we have food and clothing, that should be enough. You'll never hear them say that because they don't believe it. Because for them, godliness is a means to material gain. And then Paul gives us another reason in verse 9. This time, it's a negative warning. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. Now, we must be careful in clarifying what Paul is not saying here. He's not saying that getting rich is sinful. But the desire to do so is. Occasionally I hear people justify their desire for getting rich by saying that they want to help others and be generous when they have lots of money. My typical thought is, and sometimes I say it, but sometimes I don't because I don't want to, perhaps I'm afraid of them. If they're not generous now with little, they will not be generous when they have much. The desire to get rich, the Bible says, for whatever reason, is a harmful desire. It brings with it, whether you realize it or not, all kinds of temptations and traps and other harmful desires which held, held, have the potential of plunging men into ruin and destruction. And here's the irony. By seeking security and happiness in the pursuit of money, such pursuit may lead us in the opposite direction to ruin and destruction. How is that possible? Verse 10, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice Paul doesn't say that money is a root of all evil. But the love of money is a, a root of all kinds of evil. Friends, you don't need to have a lot of money to love money. Your love of money is not gauged by how much money you have. 
There are rich people who love money, and there are poor people who love money. There are rich people who do not have a love of money, and there are poor people who do not have a love of money. So the presence of money in your bank account or the stuff you own is not necessarily a good indicator of your love of money. The presence of contentment, however, is a great indicator. The presence of giving away generously according to your means is also a great indicator. People who love money don't like to give it away. People who are free from the love of money not only give generously, but they do it with joy. And the reason why we want to give money away is not so that we can get more, as the TV preachers will tell you, but because we realize how much we have been given already in Christ. Friends, for those of us who are Christians, our love of money may not be love at first sight. Instead, that love may grow very slowly on us. And this is far more dangerous to spot and to root out. But be discerning of your own heart and protect it from the deceitfulness of riches. Paul says to Timothy, "Be, But you, O man of God, flee from all this. The way you protect your heart is to declare war, not on riches, but on the desire to get rich. If God chooses to bless your hard work with surplus of money, great! But don't make that your goal in life or the foundation of your contentment and definitely be weary of the false prophets who encourage you to make godliness a means for material gain. If you're a Christian, meditate on the cross of Christ, on the riches Christ has given you already. Ask God to open the eyes of your heart to see the unfathomable riches that he bestowed upon you already. Ask God to heal your heart from the sin of putting conditions on your contentment. If you do not have a personal relationship with Christ, I must share with you the bad news that you have not yet received the greatest riches that Christ has given us in his death and resurrection. You do not have the foundation for contentment, for biblical contentment. But I want to tell you today about it. So that today, too, you may find the joy, the source of our thankfulness and our joy, not in the material blessings that God gives us, but in Christ alone. Friends, the Bible tells us that God loves us. He loved us by creating us in, in, in His image to reflect His character, to reflect His nature, to reflect Himself. But we rebelled against God. We were deceived by the devil into thinking that we can be like God by going against his word. So we did. And thus we have become the object not of God's acceptance, but the object of God's wrath. For the wages of sin is death. We became deprived of our relationship with God. And we incurred judgment upon us. God's judgment upon us. And this is how each of us came into this world. Yet God, even while we were his enemies, still loved us. And he did so by sending Christ, his only son, to be the object of his wrath in our place. So that by dying as our substitute, Christ took upon himself our wretchedness and gave us instead his riches so that those who repent of their sins, those who trust in Christ in faith,
and follow Him, become children of God, adopted into His family, made heirs of God's eternal riches. Friends, if you have not repented of your sins and turned to Christ in faith to be your Savior and Lord, I encourage you today, respond to Him. Right now, in your heart. And if you want to respond to Christ in these moments, I encourage you after the service, go and talk to someone about your decision, about your desire to respond to Christ. You may come to me and talk to me or one of the deacons or any of the members of this congregation. For those of us who have responded to Christ and have made that response public through baptism, for us, we are encouraged to guard our hearts from ongoing deception of riches, from the danger of pursuing godliness for the sake of material or physical gain. Are there any desires in your own heart this morning that you need to ask God to purge away from you? Are there any harmful desires you need to declare war on? Do you need to ask God to cleanse your heart so that you may see Christ once again as your greatest gain, so that you could truly consider everything else as rubbish in comparison with gaining Christ? What are the harmful desires you need to turn away from as you look to Christ? Let's pray.